couldn't please anybody. And I felt like the walls were closing in. I felt like I couldn't please God, I couldn't please anybody. And I was like walking that night, I left the house and I walked for a long time until I came to a highway overpass. And I remember standing on that highway overpass and I was looking down and I was like, okay, it's about 30, 35 feet. And I remember seeing these semi trucks drive and watching their headlights. And I thought if I timed it right, then I could end it all here. And I could almost hear the devil laughing at me, like just playing mind games. I could hear just the voice of the enemy saying, you are done. God's finished with you. And going, yeah, maybe it's true. Maybe, maybe life would be better off for everyone if I was gone. And maybe the world would be better if I wasn't here. And Holy Spirit like whispered to me. Okay, Pastor Paul, I have actually uh, read the book. I'm holding it up here mind games and I, I i yes and i've read it and look i have to just share i have really marked some pages because uh, uh first of all welcome i have some questions for you and i so appreciate uh, the relationship with you and with victory christian and um with your wife and family i just want to let you know how much and so it's an honor for me to be able to say, hey, this is a great book. Let's talk about it because you're going to help a lot of a lot of folks with this. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me come on your platform. And you've been an inspiration to me and my wife. You have inspired me through your books. I've read several of your books. And, you know, just your voice, who you are, what you bring to the world, what you do for people and bringing mental and emotional health to people through your books, through your teaching, through your services, through your what, what God's gifted you to do through your company. That's, that's, that's why I'm interested in, 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 in mind games. First of all, how did you arrive at the title uh, Mind Games? Yes, sir. So I was probably 12 years ago, I was in the middle of my own mind game battle and I had lost my father. Our church had gone through a very dark season of yeah. just discouragement, people leaving, people missing my dad. My mom is my hero. My mom stepped in as an interim pastor for our church. And in a, in a world that has a hard time accepting women in a pastoral role on a pulpit, on a stage, she stepped up there and really helped stabilize our church, but at the same time was grieving the loss of her husband. And our church was grieving the loss of their pastor, and I was grieving the loss of my dad. And so it brought a lot of um, sane, I mean, sa sadness and pain and difficulty. And I spiraled during that season from being sad to grieving to full on just depression where I was in the middle of my own mind games. I was battling anxiety. I was battling who's gonna leave next? Are we gonna have to shut down the church? Uh, am I gonna make it? Do I even wanna make it? Is, is, this, is life worth living? And I went through all those battles to where I was like, when I came out on the other side of that, I thought I need to share this story because there's a lot of guys out there like me, whether they are pastors or leaders or dads or husbands or just college student, guys that need to know you're not alone and not just guys, but everybody, girls, everybody that battle the mind games of discouragement, failure, fear, anxiety, panic, worry, depression, and how to get through that from a pastoral perspective. And I know, you know, I'm not like you. I don't have my PhD in psychology. I don't have all of the expert years of studying the mind and the heart, but I do have the understanding as a pastor 
of what believers face every day that I preach to and that I counsel with and sit with in our church that have their own mind games. And so that kind of led me to this title. It's like, okay, let's deal with the mind because that's a huge area the Bible talks about on how to win on the inside. Yeah. Renewing the mind. Three words that I underlined uh, right off was disconnected, discouraged, and disappointed. But your journey, which is really a descriptor of of, of where things were for you and uh, the significance of losing your father. And I want to let you know that um, though I knew, knew the story, how you share this was just incredible. And, and the whole story about the keys and the, and the, and not having the master key yet. Yes. Yeah. Having it, but not knowing I had it, discovering it was with me all along and definitely, yeah, yeah. definitely walking through that season. I think you just said those three words. I, I felt disconnected. I felt disconnected from God. I felt disconnected from people. And then I felt disappointed. I felt like life did not turn out the way that I hoped it would. I prayed for my dad to get healed. He didn't get healed. Then I prayed for our church to have no battles, no trials, people to stay. And then we faced all kinds of trials and people left. So it's like everything I was hoping wouldn't happen. So then that led to this place of discouragement and depression. And so that is, yeah, that was my spiral until the day that I realized I don't have to stay in this place. I don't have to be depressed my whole life. I don't have to be defeated. I can find victory. One of the things I've always appreciated about you is just this, how you're authentic and how you tell the truth, and this is what you went through. And it got pretty bad. I mean, there was a point where you go, is life worth living? Can you share a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah. So one night, winter of 2012, early 2013, it was kind of this culminating season of like, everything felt like it was just the walls were closing in. It was like, man, things yeah. aren't getting better. Things seem to be getting worse. I don't see light at the end of the tunnel. One night, my wife and I, I think we had a, a dumb argument over milk or something like that. And it was like, should we get the expensive milk or the cheap milk? And I grew up on cheap milk. She grew up with organic milk. And she was like, we got to get the organic milk. It's healthy for us. And I was like, I'm just trying to make it. You know, I don't know. I was, I was like having this emotional meltdown because I was sad. We had, we had to lay off several employees at, at the school because yeah. our church is not just a church. We have a school, a camp, a dream center, a college. So we had 400 employees. And when things started going down, we yeah. had to lay off a lot of employees, which led to people mad at me, people going, you know, why did I get let go? And this person's here. And I was like, I couldn't please anybody. And I felt like the walls were closing in. I felt like I couldn't please God. I couldn't please anybody. And I was like, Walking that night, I left the house and I went walking and I walked for a long time until I came to a highway overpass. And I remember standing on that highway overpass and I was looking down and I was like, okay, it's about 30, 35 feet. And if I jump, nothing, nothing terrible would happen. I'd probably break a bone, but I wouldn't die. And I remember seeing these semi trucks drive and watching their headlights. And I thought if I timed it right, Mm. then I could end it all here. And I could almost hear the devil laughing at me, like just playing mind games. I could hear just the voice of the enemy saying, you are done. God's finished with you. Your best days are behind you. You're not going to get through this. Things are going to get worse. You should end your misery. 
And I remember just listening to those lies and not combating them, not trying to challenge those thoughts, just kind of sitting in my thoughts of mm. negativity and going, yeah, maybe it's true. Maybe, maybe life would be better off for everyone if I was gone. And maybe the world would be better if I wasn't here. Maybe, mm. maybe I could get rid of it all tonight. And I was standing there, staring there, sad. It was about 11.30 p.m. when what felt like a raindrop hit my head. The Bible says we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And I truly believe if we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, that our loved ones are part of that cloud that believed in God, who've gone on to heaven ahead of us, and that possibly they can look down occasionally from a window or some portal in heaven and cheer us on. We may not hear them, obviously, audibly, right. but Somewhere we can go, man. I I feel like feel like I'm I'm being encouraged from heaven right now. I feel like God's for me, not against me. And I I hadn't believed that for yeah. a while. I had been in a season where I thought God is not for me. God is not with me. God f feels like you've forsaken me. You know, like a David type of psalm. Like where are you, God? I don't feel you. And that night, for the first time in a while, I felt. I felt something from heaven, like, don't quit, Paul. I didn't hear those words audibly, but I could just feel the presence of heaven was cheering me on saying, don't throw in the towel, don't you quit. And I could almost see my dad was up there saying, remember what I taught you when you were a boy. Remember what I taught you. And this scripture came to my mind, I will live and not die and declare the works of the Lord. And the Bible says, train a child up in the way he should go and he will not depart from it when he gets older. So for me... I think I had departed the idea of confessing the word of God. I had been taught, hey, we meditate on the word of God and then we speak out the word of God over our lives. But I had not been doing that for a while. I had kind of drifted away from that whole idea of meditating on God's word, speaking it out. And so that night, all of a sudden it came back to me. I, I can declare this. And I pointed in the darkness as if the devil himself was laughing at me. And I was like, Satan, I rebuke you. I choose to live and not die and declare the works of the Lord. I choose to live and not die. And that was the scripture that came back to me. And as I said it, I was crying. You said that out loud. I choose to live, not die. I shouted. I was like, I choose to yeah. live. If someone was driving by, seeing me on the bridge, they yeah. might have thought I was you know, talking to myself, that I had all these voices. And I was. But I was talking myself into victory. I was talking myself out of this depression that I had been in. And it would take another eight months for me to finally feel mentally and emotionally back to a healthy place. But that night was the turning point. And I never went back to that place, never went back to a suicidal state, never went back to a thought of, hey, I'm just going to throw it all away. It was That was the, the night things shifted for me where I decided I, I don't want to live like this. I don't want to live mentally and emotionally so down and defeated that I come to this place again. I've got I've to start finding the victory over these mind games the enemy's been playing. And so that night, I, you know, I describe in the book, depression for me is not like a heavy cloud that sits over my head, but depression for me is like walking into a house, yeah. finding this door, opening the door, going down into this basement, discovering that this basement has another door, opening that door, going into a second, third, until I'm seven basements below the normal level that everyone's on. And that was for me climbing out of those steps. Yeah. Uh, and you know what? That's so interesting because I had marked that because I think many folks can understand because depression, you know, it 
it's downstairs and it's deeper than for some than what you ever imagined things could be like and it's hard to de describe sometimes just the darkness of the experience but it's very real and i just appreciated how you shared that because many will relate to um the darkness and the stairs and you think you're at the end you think eh, i couldn't get any worse than this and and yet sometimes it does and yeah. But we, you did something that had to be done. You made a decision. Well, despite depression or despite, I don't know exactly what's ahead, but I'm choosing life. Yes. We live in a culture that's really promoting death. And we live in a culture where uh, we're seeing suicide numbers as all-time highs. And uh, we need to know, and folks need to know, that we can choose life. We don't know yet what it's all going to look like and you take us on that journey here but we are, we have a pivotal point of choosing life and that's what you did well and you you've given words to this you're the expert on this and i've been inspired when i've read your books dealing with the thoughts of hopelessness yeah. anxiety depression and feeling like we don't have a choice and you've you've taught mm -hmm. many people uh around the world we do have that choice and we have to regain our authority to say, hold on, I'm not being forced into this. I can still choose. I may right. not be able to control my outward circumstances, but I can choose what I'm going to think on and I can choose that I'm going to choose to live. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to acknowledge that's what, that's what you did and that's what each person has to ultimately do. Now, you also went, took us through a journey of some of the things you had to face. Uh, one of the things you share about uh, was just all the insecurities. And, yeah. uh, okay, if I'm going to live, I have to face some things. And sometimes we need help doing that. Or um, sometimes, you know, we tend to go into isolation. But uh, you made some decisions uh, to face some things. Yes, yeah. Well, like you said, one of the things, one of the mind games that I had to deal with was the insecurity that I didn't measure up to my dad. He was a phenomenal pastor, leader, preacher. So when when I stepped into pastor in 2014, my mom said, hey, it's time. Your dad saw this in you. I, I can't, I don't feel to mm -hmm. keep doing this anymore. It's your turn. Right. When I stepped in, I immediately felt I'm unworthy. I like I'm mm -hmm. I'm free of depression, but I don't feel like I'm free of insecurity. And so I felt deeply insecure about people's expressions, their reactions, whether or not I measured up in their eyes as a good preacher, a communicator, and and then leading meetings and sitting down and trying to lead staff. I just felt insecure. And then I realized insecurity is a not just a problem that communicators have or preachers or speakers. Insecurity is a problem that moms have, dads have, teenagers yeah, have, yeah. grandparents. I would sit down with grandparents because I started talking about my insecurities from stage and people would start laughing and nodding their head like, yeah, me too. And I would sit with people at the altar and they're like, man, I'm, I'm insecure about what my family thinks about me. And I'm insecure about whether my kids really love me. And I remember sitting down with a grandmother and she was like, I don't feel like people like me, I feel like they don't come to see me enough. And I was like, insecurity is a global multi-generational issue. It just looks different for everybody, 
where we question our worth, we question our value, we question if we're good enough in the eyes of people. And so I dive deep into that whole topic of investigating insecurity. Why am I insecure? Why do I feel unvaluable? Why do I feel like I don't measure up? And I tell a funny story of when I first started posting my sermons on the internet and putting them on YouTube, putting them out there on Facebook, you know, different platforms, Instagram, and watching the comments and then looking at the thumbs up or the thumbs down and how I got fixated on the thumbs down people, the people who didn't like my sermon on YouTube. And then I asked our IT director, hey, can you hack into YouTube? Find out who doesn't like (laughs) my sermon, email them, reach out to them, find their IP address. And he was like, you're crazy. No, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Like, why, why are you letting these opinions of people create mind games in your head? Why do their opinions matter? And I said, well, I want people to like me. Yeah. I want people to love me. And he was like, but not everybody's going to like you. Not everybody likes Jesus. Not everybody likes anybody. Like there's every person out there has people who are not a hundred percent you know, liking them. He's like, you got to let go of the need to be approved by man. You need to let go of this approval addiction from people. And I remember just reading books like Joyce Myers has a books on this, (laughs) and um, Joel Osteen even talked about this in one of his books. And it was a, it was a series of uh, seasons and events in my life that led to that chapter where I talk about the battle against insecurity. But like you said, once you choose to live, you're going to face mind games the rest of your life. And those mind games can be everything from insecurity about what people think about you or anxiety about getting sick with COVID and dying, you know, the fear of death, the fear of failure, like whatever the mind games are, we have the rest of our life to fight those games if we choose to live. And we can do that. It's progress every day. You talked about insecurity that leads to idolatry. Yes. Clarify that. Yes. So one of the points I make about insecurity that I don't think a lot of people realize is that it turns people into idols in our life. And Mm -hmm. Elijah in the Bible, he was like living his best life. He was running with purpose. He was calling like... He was doing some of the greatest miracles he did in his lifetime in the Bible, in 1 Kings 16, 17, 18. But something happens in this one chapter in the Bible, 1 Kings 19. It says, Elijah heard that Jezebel was angry at him and wanted to kill him. And it says he ran for his life because of Jezebel's word. And yet Elijah was one of the most powerful men in the Bible that God used And he runs because this woman who has actually no authority to be able to kill him, she has no proximity where she could get close to him. She's several Mm -hmm. miles away from him. But in his mind, I think she got in his head. You can have have Jesus in your heart, but you can have Jezebel in your head. Yeah. You can have Jesus in your heart, but you can have some person who doesn't like you. And I remember there was a family in our church that I used to dread seeing them because they're – 
their body language when I would preach, they looked so mad at me all the time. Mm-hmm. And I would draw thought bubbles over their head. Like they don't like me. They're angry at this sermon. He just got up because he doesn't want to hear me preach. When in reality, he was going to use the bathroom. And then I would be like, this staff member, they don't respect me. And I would just draw thought bubbles and I would allow them to become idols in my head. They were driving me into anxiety, fear, unworthiness. And that's what happened to Elijah. He allowed Jezebel to become an idol that her opinions mattered more than God. And God basically told Elijah, hey, go back to doing what I told you to do. Because he wanders in the wilderness for 40 days, running from Jezebel, Mm -hmm. living in this overwhelmed state of insecurity because of a woman. And it happens to, to all of us. This happens to the best of us. I remember talking to a businessman at our church and he's a multimillionaire. And he said, Paul, I am successful in what I do. But when I have to get up in front of a group of people and speak, I become like a 10 year old kid in fourth grade about to pee my pants, afraid for my life of what these people think about me. And I I looked at him and he was like, successful. He's seasoned. He's a father of grown kids in college. And Mm -hmm. I thought, okay, if he battles with this and I battle with this, chances are everyone battles with some form of insecurity that we need to tackle and figure out why is it that we are overwhelmed by people's approval of us and their opinion of us. And, you know, that was something I had to learn, too. As a counselor, you need to tell people the truth, and they don't always like it when you speak the truth. And then there's, well, now they're not going to like me. And I know a pivotal growth point for me years ago was, hey, just, you know, speak truth and uh, uh, do it with the best motivations. But um, And that's how we build uh, quality relationships based upon truth. And so as you talked about and insecurities it really led us to what we're seeing now with anxiety anxiety is our number one diagnosis in our country right now it used to be depression so mm-hmm. a non-medical diagnosis is the number one diagnosis so we live in a culture and, and a, a world i think we could say of, of there's a lot of things we could be really anxious about there are so many unknowns and there's this anticipatory anxiety about what's what's the next bad thing that's going to be in the news tomorrow because there always is um but you talked about how you dealt with anxiety and this is why um, the whole person approach is so important we've got to deal with spiritual roots of anxiety as well as other influences of anxiety but you talk about the um the real answer and i'm again uh, I know the Bible says a lot about fear and to be anxious for nothing. And, and but we find ourselves sometimes really anxious. Yeah. Yeah. But, well, and I think that that's in the book. One of the stories I share for me, anxiety hit hard during COVID. And it yeah. happened in March of 2020. I I remember waking up to text messages, phone calls, voicemails, basically saying, hey, the world is shutting yeah. down. What are we going to do? And our mayor had announced a lockdown, that COVID was spreading, and that every church in our city needed to shut down. And then when I turned on the news, it was like, not just the church, but our school. We have a Christian school, kindergarten through 12th grade. Our Bible college had to shut down. And then they said soup kitchens have to shut down. 
well, we have a we have a homeless or a soup kitchen ministry called the Dream Center. And so I was yeah. like, okay, we got to shut down our church, our school, our college, our camp, where we host camps and stuff, and our Dream Center. And then I was like, how are we going to pay the bills? How are we going to take care of these employees? But also, how are we going to help the poor who are in the middle of this COVID crisis? And you're saying they're not going to get grocery. They're not going to get help. Like, where do they go? Right. Uh, and I remember just this anxiety. It was like a panic attack hit me and I was like overwhelmed because my wife and I, we were in the middle of building our house. We had saved up for a long time. We had sold our house that we had once lived in and we were living with my in-laws, which when you're living with your in-laws, that's always a fun adventure. Uh, you know, living with my mother-in-law, father-in-law, but their house was also in the middle of its, its own construction. It was a three bedroom house and we had three kids, two dogs. They had a dog. We were pregnant with our fourth kid on the way, uh, and we were about, oh, we, we found out in COVID that we got pregnant with our fifth kid after that fourth kid was born. So it was like, it was the middle of all this intense, like, oh no. Once again, the walls were closing in, and I'm in this middle of this panic attack and thinking we won't be able to finish this house. We're going to have to, we won't be able to pay the it's going to get closed. The bank's going to take over. We're going to default on the loan. Like all these bad things are going to happen. And then thinking we're going to have to lay off. We can't pay the employees. COVID's going to mess everything up. And then thinking about the COVID sickness. Like, I wonder if our family has it. I wonder if our kids have it. Uh, are we going to live? Are we going to die? And anxiety was intense for the whole world, not just for me, but for the yeah. whole world. We all, we were overwhelmed with all the what ifs, what if, what if, and, and anxiety just kept going up. Yes. And 40% of the things we worry about and are anxious about will never happen. Experts mm -hmm. and scientists have discovered 40% will never happen. 30% revolves around things that are in our past that we can't control. It's already in the past decisions we've made. Uh, the, yeah. Then you get down to the actual percentage of anxious what if thoughts that could happen. The actual percentage is about eight or 9%. And worrying about that actually makes you less prepared to handle the reality of what is going to happen that may be negative. We have to take control of our thoughts and we can't just say, hey, everything's going to work out. It's going to be fine. And I just shouldn't worry. The reality is there's going to be trials. There's going to be negative things. There will be things that aren't easy to face, but we can't face those things from an anxious spirit. Anxiety yeah. never fixed any problem. Worry never yeah. fixed any problem. Jesus says, who of you by worrying or being anxious could add any hours to your life or any inches to your height? It actually empties us of the strength we need to face those problems. And so I talk about in the, in the chapter, how do we get a hold of that anxiety? How do we, how do we begin mm -hmm. to empty out the anxiety in our spirit? And sometimes you have to play out the what if, but then you have to play it out with the sovereignty of God, the grace of God, the goodness of God, and say, no matter what happens, God is going to be with me. Oh. And if I can trust that he's with me and he's still for me, even if the whole world is against me, if God is for me, I'm going to get through this and I need to calm my spirit down and I need to bring my anxious thoughts into the presence of God through prayer, through worship. I need to call a counselor I need to share with them what I'm walking through. Ask that counselor, hey, would you just give me some wisdom? I've got racing thoughts right now of anxiety. And 
that is, I mean, God has blessed us with people like you, Dr. Jantz. You are a gift mm -hmm. to me, to pastors around the world. You are a gift. What God does through a clinical doctor in psychology who believes in the word of God, but also believes in practical tools, medicine, counseling, the right therapy, it can, and even the right diet, right. the right physical right. diet, it all plays into bringing a person into a place of peace. And we need peace more than ever. We need peace. Oh, you talk about, I remember reading about contentment, peace and contentment. Um, but part of that was identity and purpose. Now, I know for someone who's with us today and and they're overwhelmed by the depression or the anxiety and you you can't see the hope for the future you you can't see it yet i just want to acknowledge because a lot of times that's where we are we can't see this yet and so as paul and i are talking about a different side of depression i just want to toss in that sometimes we're not there yet. We don't see it. But I wanted to have Pastor Paul with us today because he's walked the journey. And sometimes we need to hear from somebody else who's really walked the journey and on a solid faith foundation. So talk about identity, purpose, contentment, because that's where we're going as we walk in recovery. And it doesn't mean we won't ever have another anxious day or another yeah. day or maybe there'll be another period of depression, but it's always an opportunity for us to grow stronger. So I, there is hope and hope comes when there's it's a plan. Hope. So talk about how did you get to, you know, you right here and I just looked at it and saw it. When you're confident in your own identity and purpose, you can choose not to feel threatened by the identity and purpose of others. Yes. Yeah. Well, I went through a season where you know, God got us through COVID, praise God. Yeah. Uh, and just to anyone out there who is listening to this, surviving COVID alone should be a testimony that each person out there holds on to like, hey, we yeah. got through this. We can get through a lot of other things. But yeah, I think we we do start to look to the left and to the right in seasons and yeah. we go, oh man, I wish I had what they had. If I if I had the opportunities they had, I would be so much more successful. If I had the gifts they had, the money they had, the car, the house, uh, the, mm -hmm. the physique, the family, the background, if I had what they have, then I'd finally be happy. And that's so false. Because the reality is if we can't be happy with who we are and where we are in life, nothing will ever be enough to make us happy. I was invited to play golf one day. This was back in 2016. I was invited to play golf one day with a an author named John Maxwell, and he writes leadership mm -hmm. books. Yes. And he said, hey, Paul, I want to sponsor you to play golf with me at Pebble Beach. And I was like, what? This is like <laughs> a dream golf course. I'm not a good golfer. I'm a terrible golfer. Yeah. I barely played growing up, but I I couldn't miss out on this opportunity. So I went. And when he saw me hit my first shot, he laughed. He said, okay, you're going to golf with a different group. I'm golfing with other guys that are more experienced. And I, I didn't take it personal. I was just happy to be there. Um, <laughs> yeah, my yeah. caddy, he looked at me and the caddy out at Pebble Beach, he's like, do you ever play golf? I was like, not really. And he's like, this is going to be a long day. I said, yes, sir. And he said, I'm not even going to tell you what clubs to use because it doesn't matter. You're not that good. <laughs> and so I was like, hey, let's just laugh. 
We'll have fun. It's Carmel, California. The weather's great. Yeah. Let's just enjoy it. So we were walking and he points over there. He says, hey, that's that's Gene Hackman's house. Uh, you know, one of the most yeah. successful actors. He said, that's Clint Eastwood's house over there. I was like, what? He said, that's Charles Schwab's house. And he started telling me all these wealthy people that live in Pebble Beach. And then he says, guess how much that house is worth? I was like, I don't know. He's like, $28 million. Over there, he's like, $74 million. I was like, what? And then he said something that I'll never forget. He said, most of these guys are miserable as H-E double hockey sticks. Wow. And I said, what are you saying? He said, there's not enough money in the world to buy happiness. He said, Paul, mm -hmm. these guys have close to, some of them, over billions of dollars. Yeah. And he said, some of the wealthiest people in the world are also the most miserable people in the world. Mm -hmm. And I said, why do you think that is? And he said, because people think if I make more money, if I, if I get what this guy's got, if I have what he has, if I drive what he drives, if, and there, he said, some of these guys are on their eighth marriage. He's like, I'm not talking second, third marriage. He's like, I'm talking, they've been through seven different wives that weren't good enough. And after all the surgeries and after all the things that these people do, they're still not satisfied. They're not happy. They're not content. And they still have a broken heart and they still yeah. have a broken mind. And it reminded me that contentment is not found out here. Contentment is found in here. The battle for a content life, the battle for a good soul, the battle for a happy life is not what we have on the outside. It's, it's what we believe on the inside. Paul mm -hmm. the Apostle, he said in Philippians 4, I've learned the secret to a happy life. I've learned the yeah. secret to contentment. And he said, I can do all things through Christ who lives in me. And I'm realizing more and more, no matter how many people come to our church, no matter how many books I might sell, at the end of the day, there's not a number that could make me happy. Mm -hmm. And I have to overcome that. I, I tell a chapter in that, I tell a story in that chapter that I battled with jealousy of this other young pastor who was becoming viral on every platform out mm -hmm. there. And I was trying to chase his fame. I was trying to chase his success. And right. I, I went through a crucible where the Lord said, that's selfish ambition, it's vain ambition, and it will never mm -hmm. be enough. And you need to live for the glory of God, not the glory of Paul. You need to live for the contentment of what God has given you and not what another man has. And I had to let it go and just go, Lord, help me to celebrate people who are succeeding and having great success and getting the things that maybe I thought I needed and help me to be happy with what I have, because what I have is more than enough. And the yeah. Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. And when we compare, we always do feel inferior. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's because it's so easy. We live in, I mean, you take social media, and it's, it's so easy to compare. And then we make, yes. assumptions, we make assumptions, everything is really great for them. Look at this. And... And in reality, that's not the case, but we always feel worse when we compare. Yes, we, 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 and, and I was stuck in that comparison trap, Dr. Jantz. After I yeah. battled depression, one of the biggest battles I faced was comparison. And whether it was comparison <laughs> with another young pastor in my life or comparison with another dad out there that was doing better in, in my mind as a dad than I was, or a better husband, or, you know, just a, a like better people who were better. Yeah. I always felt inferior or if I was doing good, I felt prideful. And both right. of those things are absolutely ungodly. You know, we've got to come back to a healthy view of who we are in Christ. 
I'm not all that, but I'm also not, you know, I'm not what the enemy says. I am a child of God and finding contentment that I don't have to be who this person is or have what they have to be a success. Um, you know, even, even the pressure with my publisher, they said, in order for this book to be a success, you got to sell a certain amount of books in order for it to be a bestseller. Right. Right. And then the Holy Spirit like whispered to me, success is obedience. Success is not a certain amount of books sold. It's obedience. Did you obey God? And if you obeyed, now you can't tell that to a publisher because they're like, yeah, but you still need to go sell those books. I'm like, yeah, yeah. But but in God's eyes, and I got to remind myself, in God's eyes. Yeah. Well, really, and you're talking too about uh, motivation. What's my motivation? To, To try to be better than somebody else? Or is this really about truly serving others and, and doing what God has called me to do. Yeah. So yes. you, um, if I remember correctly, the last uh, segment of the book was the beautiful mind. Was that, do I have that? Yes, yeah. Beautiful mind. The beautiful mind. Okay. So we're kind of just walking through some highlights here. And so as, as folks get the, the book, you'll probably do what I did and do this. Um, but on the, uh, the, the journey takes us to a place, and you did this so wonderfully, about, okay, what's it mean to have a beautiful mind? What What are you talking about here? Share that. Yes. No, I and that is like one of my favorite chapters because it's all positive. It's all about, yeah. it's all about getting to that place where our mind is like Jesus. And Paul the Apostle says, we have the mind of Christ. So I talk about that scripture. How do I have a mind that's like Jesus. How do I have a beautiful mind? Um, the the interesting thing about that title comes from an old movie about a man who honestly had lost his mind. Yeah. And he had to reclaim his mind. He had to find a way through all of his own mental struggles of schizophrenia and, and bipolar and all the different things that his mental health had had gone into. And yet Scripturally, God gives us a blueprint for a beautiful mind. He shows us how do I have a mind that's free of comparison, a mind that celebrates others, a mind that lives with an encouragement on the inside and shares that with other people, a mind that is not overwhelmed by the fear of tomorrow and the anxiety of yesterday's mistakes or the shame that follows people. And so I kind of dive into that and I tell some stories of other people I tell a, an interesting story that that I got to see happen in the Olympics of these two runners. And one of the runners was winning the race and he's getting to the very end of the race. But he knows he shouldn't be winning because the other guy was absolutely faster than him and was picked by everyone to win the race. So he turns around to see like, why am I so far ahead? <laughs> and the reason is, is because the guy who was winning had a mental lapse where he thought he had crossed the finish line a hundred feet before the finish line happened. So when he thought he had crossed it, he just stopped running. And the other guy in second place mm-hmm. was running past him and was about <laughs> to cross the actual finish line. And he, he turns around and he goes, no, I can't do this because this man deserves the win. And in a world where most people would go, oh yeah, I'm going to take the victory when some other dude's having Mm -hmm. a a mental breakdown. This is my chance to win. He goes back, he lifts up the other guy and goes, hey, you're not done yet. They don't speak the same language, but he literally lifts him up and says, hey, you haven't finished yet. 
you are the rightful winner. And the man's looking at him, he's like, what? And he actually pushes him to victory. He pushes the other guy across the actual finish line to give him the victory in front of him. And the man was applauded as a hero, not because he won the race, but because he won a bigger race. He won a of helping other people win. You never lose when you help others win. And I talk about in that chapter that a beautiful mind is not like, hey, look at me, I'm awesome and I'm succeeding. A beautiful mind is someone who lives with a heart for other people, a heart for God, a heart with compassion, a heart free of being threatened by everyone, a heart free of insecurity all the time. And we'll always face battles. I I, I know yeah. the rest yeah. of our life, we'll always have mind games. But we don't have to be defeated by those games. We can win. And we grow stronger with, and not weaker. And so some of the things that maybe seem really overwhelming right now and the depths of some of that maybe despair, um, as you keep making the choice to go on and applying what you're hearing today from uh, Pastor Paul, you will be strengthened. And and so some of the dips in the future are not quite as low and, and we grow stronger. And uh, that's why I loved how you ended with a beautiful mind. We are growing stronger. There is hope for the, for my future. And I have to walk through some things, but you've learned so much about, well, about yourself and, you know, the, from the insecurities, depression, um, but you're addressing some issues that we don't always hear addressed in the church. And mm-hmm. I, it's just a really special uh, acknowledgement, and I'm, I'm cheering you on big time, uh, Thank because you. because we need to hear, and we need to hear authentically, and that's what you did here with Mind Games. So thank you, Mr. Jance. I love it. I love your family, and I love what you represent. And so, um, I'm just want to let you know. This will be a huge blessing to so many for a long time because these are issues that um, are not just one-time issues. We all know somebody who we all know somebody, and so you have a message here that's not only hopeful but it's also very helpful. So I just want to say personally, thank you. I stand thank with you. you. You're gonna make me cry <laughs> listening to you. I'm like he. <clears throat> You don't realize how much your words uh, carry heavy weight in my life, in my wife's life, in our church. And honestly, when you came and spoke on mental health to our staff and to our church, it mm-hmm. it lit a healthy revolution in our staff oh. to pursue mental and emotional health and to, to help other students. We had kids in our school and our college still do every, every week that yeah. we are helping win the games because you had such great teaching on it. And so we got to have you back. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I stand with you and this is going to help a lot of people. And we're at a point where there are so many on that edge of despair and that despondency who are not feeling. So um, we're going to get the good word out. Amen, Thank amen. You. Thank you, Dr. Jantz.